Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Jocelyn Chertoff, Professor and Chair of the Department of Radiology and Vice President of the Regional Radiology Service Line for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System and Geisel School of Medicine. Having served on the Dartmouth faculty for 31 years, Jocelyn has leveraged her love of learning and affinity for leadership to pursue and complete leadership training as a fellow of the Hedwig van Ameringen Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine, or ELAM program for women, receiving a master's degree from the Center for the Evaluative Clinical Sciences from Dartmouth College, and completing a master's of healthcare delivery science from the Tuck School of Business and the Dartmouth Institute. As Radiology Residency Program Director for 13 years and Department Chair for another seven, Dr. Chertoff has brought impactful leadership both locally at Dartmouth and nationally within the Association for Program Directors in Radiology and the Association for University Radiologists. She has influenced the careers of scores of residents and been a fierce advocate for women as leaders. Jocelyn, welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. Well, I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I lived in several places. I lived in Harrisburg and Baltimore and Pittsburgh. And then when I was 10, we moved to New York City, which is where my family considered that we were home. They had always wanted to move back to New York because my father was from there. And that's where I stayed until I went away to school. You were in Manhattan? In Manhattan, yes, in the Upper West Side. So a very urban setting for your childhood. Very, very urban, although the other places I lived were pretty suburban. Interestingly, we moved into my grandmother's apartment and then into an apartment in that building. The thing that's a little unusual is to have three generations in the same building, and the doorman in that building knew me from when I was an infant being brought back to visit my grandmother. So it really felt like a family home. So did you have three generations together in one apartment or did you occupy separate apartments? For a short period of time, we were all in one apartment and then we were in separate apartments. And in fact, ultimately, this is kind of a New York story. We lived in the A apartment and the woman in the B apartment became ill and left the apartment. They were all rent controlled. So we got both the A and the B apartment And we asked the super if we could take the wall down. And he said, that's illegal. And I can probably start work on that in a few weeks. (laughs) So we lived in mirror image apartments. And then where this really becomes almost like a Woody Allen movie is after my parents got divorced, they put the wall back up. And there was a period of time where she lived in A and he lived in B. That sounds complicated. Yeah, very unusual. How about brothers and sisters? I have an older brother who's 18 months older. 18 months older. So it's the two of you in the house. And at what age were your parents divorced? When I finished college. So 21. So later. I see. So growing up, what did your parents do for a living? Well, my father was a rabbi and his father was a rabbi and his brother was a rabbi. So it was the family business. 
but my brother and I did not go into the family business. And my mother initially went back to work just in a secretarial role, but ended up as the executive director of Hebrew Union College. So she really worked her way up. Wow. So Judaism must have been a very big part of your upbringing. Yes, Judaism and Zionism. We were brought up very observant. Having a spiritual leader as a father, was spirituality a big topic of conversation in the house and in conversations around the dinner table? You know, I wouldn't exactly use the word spirituality, but certainly it was a big part of conversation. And it was more, I would say, the intellectual side of Judaism that was a very common conversation. And frequently he would tell us what the Talmudic answer would be to something that was a question or a conflict. And even now there are times when the Talmudic kind of advice comes to me. And even now, no matter how hungry I am, when I get home from work, I feed the dogs first because that's something that I learned. In fact, I mean, I don't want to be overly controversial, but you're interviewing me on a day right after a very significant threat to Roe v. Wade. And it brings me back to conversations that we had. I graduated high school in 73. So up until then, abortion was not legal. And we did discuss it from the perspective of Jewish law. And of course, in Jewish law, the wife, the, uh, the life of the woman is of paramount importance. So if there were any question of deciding between the two lives, it's the woman's life that takes precedence. It seems like it was an incredible influence on your upbringing. How did having a father and uncle, grandfather who were rabbis influence your relationships with other kids in the neighborhood? And I mean, did you feel like in spite of, you know, such a pious family that you had a fairly normal upbringing with friends in the neighborhood? I mean, as normal as somebody growing up in the Upper West Side, I suppose. I think once we moved to New York, he wasn't in a pulpit anymore. And so that became much easier. And I had a lot of friends who had similar backgrounds, as well as people that didn't. When he was in a pulpit, it could be very uncomfortable because I was held to a very high standard of behavior by my mother. So, you know, there was always like the rabbi's daughter, you can't wear that, you can't do that, you know, you have to behave. But once we moved to New York, things got much, much easier. And we were not in any sort of a public eye. So it felt pretty normal. What was your first job outside the house? Well, the first thing I ever did as a job, I was very young, and there was a woman across the hall in the apartment building who was an editor for a publishing company. I don't remember what the company was. And she asked me to read a book and give her my opinion and any suggestions and edits. It's kind of funny because I love editing. I don't even know how old I was. I don't think I was in high school yet. I was probably maybe middle school. But I worked at Baskin Robbins, the ice cream place on Broadway when I was in high school. And my mother was very worried about me coming home late at night. And so she would send my father out to hover when it was about time for me to come home. And he'd say, oh, no, no, I wasn't waiting for you. I went out for milk. And here we are. And that was a lot of fun because I lived near Columbia University. And, you know, in those days, needless to say, there were a lot of drugs in New York City. And there were a lot of drugs in my neighborhood. And the college kids would come in 
obviously stoned. And they would just look at all these choices of ice cream and they would be incapable of making a choice. They would just look at the ice cream and go, oh, wow. You know? <laughs> so, so, so what was your strategy to help get them to a solution? Well, you know, we used to give tastes. So I was very accustomed to letting people taste things. But the other thing about these kids is that other adults would take the spoon and taste the ice cream. The college kids would frequently just open their mouths and expect me to put the ice cream in their mouth, (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't do. No. (laughs) Are there any lessons that you learned in that job at Baskin Robbins that still resonate with you today? Well, I'm not going to give you an example of this, but... It got to where we could predict what people were going to order. So maybe that's the earliest form of profiling that I ever experienced. I think it's a fairly innocent form of profiling, though. They would walk in and we would tell each other what they were going to order. And you find that that's a skill that has been something you've been able to leverage in your roles today? No, not at all. (laughs) I mean, if it ever was necessary for me to predict ice cream choices, you know, I look forward to using that skill. But so far, nothing. You know, I just want to turn back to your father being a rabbi and the influence of Judaism in the household and to ask you, you know, to what extent does spirituality play an important role in your life today? So I, again, would hesitate to use the word spirituality, but I would use morality as something that's extremely important to me and always has been. Actually, I give a talk at RSNA for one of the courses for the residents on ethics, And I've written a paper on radiology ethics. And one of the things that stimulated me to do that was thinking about how in the modern world do you teach ethics if you have students that have never learned about a moral framework, at least formally. You know, when I was young, people went to Hebrew school or they went to Sunday school or they went to church. And, you know, most people had some experience with that. And I would say it was just always something that interested me is how do you make moral decisions without a framework for thinking about that? Certainly, you know, very interesting and important topic. I find it interesting that the exposure that you had to religion has led to an emphasis on morality and ethics as opposed to the spirituality, which you said wasn't a big part. I mean, how do you interpret that? What does that mean? What does that imply? So I guess one thing is I would go back to it being a family business. So I saw a side of it that really was not about God, but was about the job and the tasks and the responsibilities. And although the word God was used very, very often in my life, there wasn't really a search for a relationship to a deity. The context was not spirituality. And I'll just mention also that, you know, one of the things that I was brought up with was this incredible emphasis on maintaining Judaism and the Jewish people. But despite that, I married a non-Jew. And that caused some concern in my family. Would you mind sharing that story about how you met your husband and how you knew that that was the right partner for you, despite the potential occurrence going in a different direction? Sure. I mean, I can tell you that in my family, there was a first cousin who married a non-Jew and her family went into mourning. You know, they sat Shiva and they said she was dead. So, you know, there was some serious pressure there. But I met my husband in college and I can honestly say that it was love at first sight. I just fell madly in love with him. 
And years later, after we were married, I told his mother that, and she said, oh, well, I knew it was for him, but I never knew that it was for you. So it wasn't really a decision. It was kind of an irresistible force. Although despite that, we were together for seven and a half years before we got married. Sounds like love in his purest form. Yep. He was Catholic, although he was a lapsed Catholic. He was very different from anybody else that I had ever met. I also thought he was like unbelievably attractive. Uh, As you should. (laughs) What do you recall being your first experience as a leader, particularly, you know, during your childhood or possibly in high school? I would say the word bossy comes to mind. You know, there's a whole internet meme about don't say bossy, say assertive. You know, I think that I definitely had a tendency to be bossy and to stand up for things, sometimes for me, sometimes for other people. As far as actual leadership experiences, though, I don't really remember that much about middle school, although I think I might have been president of a class. But certainly in high school, I began to get more involved and, you know, editor of the yearbook and those kinds of things. And it wasn't easy. You know, it really was difficult having to be the leader in those settings because, you know, you're with absolute peers and equals, but you own all the responsibility for the product. So I would say it was pretty challenging, but I think really in terms of leadership, when I think about being a leader, and I was a chief resident, so I mean, I have a bunch of those things, but I think about being in this department and people were coming to me with problems and expecting me to solve them, and I expected myself to solve them, and I solved them. So I think it was a very kind of organic path to leadership, and I have thought a lot about whether you are born a leader or whether you can become a leader. And one of the areas where I really think about this is when I look at my children and certainly my youngest, I mean, I think she was a leader in daycare. You know, the kids would get together and a few minutes into it, they would be looking to her for, what are we going to do now? How are we going to do this? And she just took over. And she does that to me now. I just... You know, I just sort of go belly up and say, okay, tell me what you want me to do. That's what we'll do. But she was clearly born a leader. And one of my other kids is extremely soft-spoken, but also is somebody that people turn to for advice and for leadership. So, you know, what I've seen in my family is a very kind of natural evolution of leaders. Sounds like you were born a leader too. Do you believe that? I do believe that. It's immodest to say that, but in my heart of hearts, since we're only sharing this with thousands of people, I do believe that. Has that helped you to be comfortable with the uncomfortable aspects of leadership? I think it has, because I think you spend your entire life to some extent in that role, even in areas outside of work, and you develop strategies for the things that are uncomfortable. And certainly that urge to fill empty space is completely gone. You know, I've certainly learned, for example, that sometimes the best thing to do is to just wait and hear what people are going to say rather than jump in to fill it. But yeah, I feel like when you're in that role, you spend your whole life being that person and hopefully you get better at it. But the responsibility is always there. I mean, and at times it's overwhelming. You know, I would feel responsible for anything that I saw And as a physician, that can be really stressful. 
What do you do when the responsibility gets overwhelming? Oh, I don't know. I don't think I have a definite strategy. I think probably the thing that works the best for me is to discuss it with somebody that I trust and not necessarily somebody who's in my professional life or professional world, but just somebody whose judgment I trust. And I have gotten just wonderful advice. Even a few weeks ago, I got great advice from a friend. I don't necessarily immediately use that advice. I think about it and over time I've come to respect it more and more. So it informs my reaction. Do you go back to the same people for that advice? Do you tend to rely on the same group of individuals? I would say I probably do just because these are people that I trust. I mean, there's this concept that I'm sure you're aware of, of having your own personal board. And I would say that some of these people are on my personal board in the sense that I absolutely trust them. I believe that they have no hidden agenda with me when they talk to me. I know that we'll support each other. And so, yes, I would say I do tend to go to the same people for advice. Do you see them as mentors? I don't. I see them as peers and friends. I struggle a little bit with the idea of mentorship because, you know, I've gone to a lot of lectures about how to be a mentor and I've certainly tried to be a mentor And I find if it's not organic, I don't think it works. And I don't mean to keep using that word, but if it's not natural and it isn't flowing, I don't think it's something where you can impose a framework on it and say, okay, I'm your mentor. We're going to talk once a month. I think that is a lot more difficult than if you fall naturally into a mentorship relationship. Why do you say that the people that you rely on for advice are not mentors, they're friends and peers? Can a friend and a peer be a mentor? Yes, I'm sure a friend and a peer can be a mentor. That's a good point. I guess I haven't thought about them that way. I think of them primarily as good friends whose advice I respect. After high school, you went straight to college. Where did you go to college? I went to Brown. Brown. And what did you study there? I majored in biology. And I made a point of taking classes outside of biology as well. Any that stand out that you really loved? Music. I took art. I took art history and I took studio art. I took philosophy. I took sociology. You know, Brown is very loose and very free. You could do anything. So a friend put together, we used to call them group independent study projects or GISP or GISP on surrealism. And it was great. You know, we read a lot of interesting things, and some of the things I learned there also stayed with me. Can you give an example? I can. I've looked for the source of this quote, and I can't find it, so it's possible that I've remembered it wrong. But I remember there was a quote by one of the surrealists, for men, the image of the female body can be the essence of freedom, but the opposite is not the case. And I thought that was a fascinating, very succinct description of kind of gender relationships and also of art, because you think about all the incredible pieces of art where women are painted and have, you know, all kinds of spiritual even associations. But when men are painted, it's more along this idea of leaders and strength and bravery and these very masculine attributes, much more constrained attributes. 
Do you think that these characteristics that you're describing in terms of classical orientation about gender roles is something that imbues daily life and something that you see playing out in day-to-day relationships? That is a very, very difficult question to answer, but I would say that it rings true more often than it doesn't. When did you decide that you wanted to be a physician? Well, I was at Brown, and I'm going to go backwards just a little bit. I took a semester off, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I felt that the time was passing too quickly. I was going to be a scientist. I loved biology, and that's what I was going to do. And I got a job in a marine fisheries lab. It was in New Jersey. And, you know, I would tell people, I'm taking a semester off. I'm going to New Jersey. And they would be like, what do you mean you're going to New Jersey? But it was like Woods Hole. And it was on the tip of Sandy Hook, which is this long peninsula that reaches out into the water. So I got to live on the tip of this peninsula. And it was all about fish and research around fish. And I really liked it. And I went back, still going to be a scientist, And I would say there are two things that moved me. One was I was doing some research with amphibians, which I really was enjoying. And one of my liberal arts friends said, well, so like, what's the goal? Are you going to find a cure for cancer? And at first I thought, oh, (laughs) no, don't be ridiculous. And then I thought, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with these frogs. And what is the point? How am I going to improve the world? Like, what do I want to spend my energy with? Do I want to just get really good at frogs or should I be looking for a cure for cancer? So that had a strong influence on me. But, you know, I had never even encountered a female physician in my life. That's not to say that I didn't think I could be one because I went to the Bronx High School of Science and, you know, a ton of people became doctors, if not Nobel Prize winning scientists from there. There were no real gender differences at that high school. So it was an incredible experience. So, I mean, I knew I could be a doctor. And I had a friend who her father was a radiologist and her sister was in medical school and she was going to go to medical school. And she brought me an application. She said, Jocelyn, you have to take the MCAT. Even if you don't want to be a doctor, they're going to change it next year. It's going to be harder. You should just take it now because you'll do well. She said, fill it out and I'll go drop them off, you know. So I did it because she seemed to think it was a good idea. I didn't see any reason not to. It didn't take a lot of time. So I did that. And it probably started me on that path. And the other thing that was influential is when I met with my advisor at Brown, and he was a scientist. And I said, I want to be a scientist. And he was the less successful sibling. His sibling was an MD researcher. He might have been an MD, PhD, but I think he was just an MD researcher who was extremely successful. And he said, look, it's impossible to get grants. You have to be an MD if you want to get any grants. So even if you want to be a researcher, you need to go to medical school because that's the only way you're ever going to get grants. And it was very cynical, but you know, I heard it. So I think all of those things had an influence on me. And frankly, you know, there was a lot of financial insecurity in my home growing up. And so the idea of being financially secure, although I didn't really know what that meant, but the idea of being able to take care of myself financially was important. I didn't understand about grants or living grant to grant. So it's not like I thought I wouldn't support myself that way. It's more that I knew I would support myself if I became a physician. So it was about being better positioned to cure cancer, 
to be able to secure funding for research and to have financial security. I would say all those things were true. Yes. And as you started on your path to become a physician and in realizing your career, have those priorities shifted? I'm not curing cancer and I'm not really getting grants, but doing good in the world has continued to be really important to me. And I would be lying if I didn't say that it was important for me to be in a position to be able to support my family. And the other thing that became increasingly important to me was being a woman in medicine, because it was not uncommon back then. But in my class in medical school, there were only 14 women out of like 83. So you definitely had a sense that you had to be good and you had to show up as a woman in the things that you did. That is a surprising ratio. So let's just kind of go through a little bit about where you went to medical school and such. You went to the University of Vermont? Yes. Sounds like it's less than a 20% women representation. Do you think that Vermont was out of the ordinary at the time or was that just sign of the times? My class was particularly fewer women than the classes that followed. And even the class before me had more women. So it may have been a little bit of a fluke, but certainly it was nothing like it is now with 50-50 or even more. Women were still in the minority and you know, there still were behaviors that were not entirely appropriate back in those days. Although I wouldn't say they were particularly noticeable back then because the world was very gendered back then. Well, the one thing though, I'll go back to the fisheries job. Part of the thing that would happen at the fishery is that people would go out on these expeditions in the boats into the ocean and we would sample fish at certain locations. And it was the sort of in the field piece of the work that we did. And as soon as I got there, I said, okay, when do I get to go? And my boss kept saying, girls don't go. Girls can't go. And I kept saying, yes, girls can go. You need to let me go. When am I going? And I just harassed him. I don't know where I got the nerve, frankly, but I harassed him constantly until he finally said, okay, fine, you're going to go. I hope you're green as a pickle, you know, because of the weather And it turned out that I don't get seasick. People were suffering all over the boat. And I was just like, this is great. (laughs) That was one of the few cases where there was just outright discrimination. I would say it was never quite as bad as that in my medical career. It was never even close. Glad to hear that. But vindication ultimately by not getting sick. Exactly. (laughs) Very good. What led you to choose the University of Vermont? I did not want to be in New York. I applied to a few New York State schools. My husband fell in love with Burlington, and that was a strong influence. And they also had an arrangement, which, again, like morally, I felt very good about, which was that it was a compact state where if you were a New York State resident, could go for in-state tuition, and I certainly didn't have much money, in return for time in a physician shortage area. And I liked the idea of being committed to work in a physician shortage area. As it turns out, there's a reason that those areas are physician shortage, and it was incredibly difficult working in a shortage area. But, you know, I learned a lot, and I'm not sorry I did it, but it was stressful and painful and difficult. For what reason? Well, so I worked in a little town in upstate New York, and basically when it was time for me to look for a physician shortage area, I got a list of counties that counted, and that was it. There was no clinic, there was no coordinator, there was no structure whatsoever. 
I just had to find a job in a county that would work. And I ended up working in an emergency room in a very, very under-resourced location. There were no ORs. It was a tiny hospital. We'd probably call it a critical access hospital now. There might have been 20 beds. The level of education, even among people in the hospital, they might have been educated at some point, but they were very isolated. It wasn't a terribly busy emergency room, although talking about gender, I guess I'll blow my horn a little bit. The pace picked up dramatically after I started working there because for one thing, I was the only female provider in several counties. I mean, I think I was nice to the patients, which they liked. And I started teaching there because I was very aware of my own limitations in my own knowledge. And the ignorance in the community was incredible. And I was bored. So I started putting talks together about basic things like poisoning, cold water drowning. <laughs> like every spring, people dove into this body of water and hurt their necks. And I was kind of hoping I could teach them not to do that, you know, and not to put butter on their burns complete with toast crumbs. Very basic stuff. But I developed a whole series of lectures that I gave, and they were pretty informal. But that was a real start to education for me. What led you to pursue radiology? I had an epiphany. I was working in this emergency room and we had a radiologist. It was either one or two mornings a week. I mean, I had done a radiology elective that was, you know, not very challenging. And I knew I couldn't read films. I knew I wasn't good enough. So I went to a class, you know, a CME course on emergency radiology for the emergency provider. And it was just mind-blowing. All of a sudden, I just said, this is what I want to do. This is fantastic. This is amazing. I mean, as an example, you know, I was up in northern New England, and it was winter. And I went to Florida for this course, and I came back without a tan. I didn't want to miss a second. So that was a wonderful moment, because then I knew what I was going to do. And I went back and did a residency and fellowship after that. How exciting. So you had a period of time after medical school where you were providing care within this underserved area, and then you just kind of had this opportunity to attend this course, and you're like, I'm going back. Yes. And in those days, you didn't need a residency to be licensed and to work. So I had done a flexible internship, and my approach, like I knew I was going to almost certainly end up doing this. So every time something would happen, I would say, okay, I know I'm supposed to call ortho, but what if I was all alone in South America? How would I take care of this patient? And it was a good approach, you know, to learning because I wasn't concentrating on learning referrals. I was concentrating on learning patient care. So I did that. And then I thought I'd go into pediatrics and I got credit for part of my flexible year. So I did another six months in a pediatric internship and realized that wasn't for me. So then I went and did this emergency room job. And then I became the medical director for emergency medical services for the state of Vermont and worked in a dock in the box. So that was another kind of interesting leadership moment. And then I went back to residency. Director for emergency services for the state of Vermont. That sounds like a pretty significant title and responsibility. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) The best thing about that job, though, or the thing that I found the most interesting in a way, it was frequently commented on 
that I was always calm when other people were not necessarily calm in this job. But, you know, my feeling was nobody is bleeding to death in front of me. Everybody is breathing. I have time to think about this. Like, I don't have to get excited or angry or upset. Like, this is not actually an emergency. It was just super interesting. And we brought in EMT defibrillation, which was a relatively new concept at that point. And that was another thing that was very interesting to be involved in. When you decided to commit to radiology, you went back to the University of Vermont. Was there any consideration that you might look somewhere else? Yeah, I thought about looking everywhere, but I went to see the dean to just talk to him about what I wanted to do. And, you know, I knew I did not want to do any form of direct patient care. And so I wanted some advice. And he was a mentor for me at that point. He was really helpful. And he got on the phone and talked to the radiology department and said, you know, she's right here in my office and I think you should interview her. So he really got me connected in an incredibly positive way. So after your residency, you did a fellowship, am I correct? Yes. It was imaging. And in those days, we didn't do a lot of body MR. So it was a lot of ultrasound. It was CT and it was actually neuro MR and MSK MR. Of course, I don't do any of that now, but it was intended to be cross-sectional imaging and it was. When you finished your fellowship and you were thinking about getting into your first job, was it always going to be academics at that point or were you considering community practice? No, I knew I wanted to be in an academic setting and I knew I didn't want to be in any sort of a solo or near solo practice because I had had that experience in the emergency room and it just, it was this kind of tedious and terrifying And I knew that wasn't for me. What was it about academic practice that led you to know that that's what you wanted to pursue? I wanted the company of other people that were really engaged in teaching and learning. I wanted to be around subspecialty experts so that if there was something that was beyond my ability, I could comfortably and easily discuss it with them and learn from them. And I liked the idea of there being residents. I was practically still a resident myself, and I liked the idea of there being residents. So after fellowship, you settled in New Hampshire at Dartmouth, where you've remained for 32 years. What led you to Dartmouth, and what has kept you there? So my husband and I were always very, very good at making decisions together. And he said he wanted to stay in New England, and I said I wanted an academic job. So there were three There was UVM, there was Maine, and there was Dartmouth. And I was really lucky. And I actually went to Dartmouth in my fourth year, and I gave a talk, which I can't even imagine now. I know I was terrified. But I also know that in the evening, I was studying for boards. And, you know, during the day, I was interviewing and giving my talk. And it worked out just perfectly because they were looking for somebody who had my interests and my skill set. And the chairman was very nice about everything. He was not excited about waiting for the fellowship. And he did say, if for any reason the fellowship is not what you were hoping, you can always come here sooner. (laughs) But he didn't pressure me. He needed you. He did. He didn't have anybody to do the work he needed done. So you took on a leadership role right out of fellowship as director of GI radiology. How was it taking on that role at that early career stage? 
I did not know what I was doing, but you know, I knew I was going to do it. So I would say that one of my mentors in residency was the head of GI Flora, Dick Hamlin. You know, people that remember me from those days, they tell me that they remember me in Flora with Dick and he was amazing. And I loved fluoro. I still love fluoro. So when I knew I was going to do this, I followed him around and tried to kind of get a real sense of how to do things. And it turns out that was a really helpful thing to do, although he never did anything the same way twice. So I tried to write down like how he did an upper GI and it was completely impossible because, you know, he was so fluid. Like he never told us how to do these studies. We watched him for a while and then we did them. And then he would say, you know, he would say things like, I wouldn't give away the duodenum. And, you know, you'd be like, what are you saying? Have I been giving away the duodenum? Did I give away the duodenum? Like, how do you give away the duodenum? But I learned a huge amount from him. And he was a real role model for me. And interestingly, one of the techs who's still here, she was a tech student in that same area. And we were friends. We weren't close friends. But when I came here, I knew her and she knew how I did things because I did things the way he did things. And so we were a great support for each other and we still work very, very closely together. Wow, fantastic to have that partnership over so many years. Was this opportunity to be director of GI radiology a specific attractant for you to the position or was it you know, sort of this incidental priority that came along with joining the faculty? I had no ambition for that role it was just something that I was going to have to do. And actually, when I arrived, there was a very senior woman who had years of experience as a GI radiologist. And Peter Spiegel, the chair, was hoping that she would mentor me. Instead, she really undermined me every chance she got. That kind of, in a weird way, made me really rise to the occasion because I did not like being bullied or undermined. It actually pushed me to really inhabit the role in a way that it might have taken me longer. That's a fantastic way to use that negativity in a positive way. You know, it seems like at this point you had some good bits of leadership experience already. Can you recall any situations during those early days where in retrospect and with the eye of all the experience you've had since, you would have handled it differently? I guess I would have not been so fearful, you know, because I was. I have the advantage maybe of, I don't look like I'm afraid, but I was afraid a lot of the time. And I was afraid reading films. I was afraid taking care of patients. That would be something that, you know, if I could, I would counsel myself to be braver, you know, and not to suffer really, because I still had to act. It was just a matter of, you're going to make the decision one way or another. You might as well not suffer over it. I know there was one occasion where a resident was accused of behaving inappropriately with a medical student, and I did not think that he had. And the much more senior person kept saying, well, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I wish I had had a better answer for him, because in no way is there necessarily fire where there's smoke, you know? (laughs) These are very nuanced situations. And feeling uncomfortable doesn't mean that someone made you uncomfortable. So, you know, in retrospect, I guess I wish that I had handled that better, although I think I handled it okay. The one thing that I would absolutely say I did not know how to handle, there were several residency situations with bad behavior. 
And I didn't stop it soon enough because I didn't know how and I didn't know who to ask. So, you know, in one case, it was a faculty person whose behavior was a problem. In many situations, it was the resident who we used to fall into this terrible pattern of a resident wasn't doing well and everybody had a million reasons why they weren't doing well. You know, you try things and then they still weren't doing well. And then by senior year, it was like, well, I'm going to ruin their life if they don't finish. So it took me a long time to learn how to break that pattern. And I did learn. And I think one of the things that really helped me was the AUR and the APDR, because then I had a peer group and I could say like, what do you do when this happens? And they were more experienced program directors who could really help me. What would you point to as sort of the top one or two things that you would do now, knowing what you know? What I changed to is there was a tendency in the department for the other radiologists to have excuses, which is understandable. Oh, well, this person is insecure, or this person is stressed, or this person is whatever. And I started kind of not really allowing that type of discussion. And I learned to redirect it and to say, we're not talking about why, we're talking about the behaviors that are problematic. Like, we are not psychiatrists, we are not analysts. I don't know what happened to them in their childhood, and that is not pertinent. You know, what's pertinent is the competency and whether we're going to be able to get them to the point where they can take safe care of patients. And if we can't, that's our responsibility. And the rest of it is perhaps interesting, but has nothing to do with our decision-making. So that turned out to be an effective way to manage those decisions. Yeah. Are you an advocate for leadership positions straight out of training? Or do you prefer for new grads to establish themselves for a few years before taking on administrative roles? So on a theoretical level, I would say it's probably better to wait. But I think... In reality, this goes back to whether you're born a leader or not. There are people that are ready and they're going to take more responsibility on no matter what. Those people, you know, it's like you recognize them and they crave that role, whether they even know it themselves or not. You can see it, that they are ready for those roles. So I just think when people are ready for the role, you give it to them. I mean, if somebody is very uncomfortable and insecure in their role as a radiologist then I would probably wait until they felt a little more comfortable. But all things being equal, when they're ready to lead, I like to give them opportunities to lead. You have continued to hold the title of Director of GI Radiology consecutively for the past 31 years. Oh, no, no, no. I gave it away. I gave it away. It might not be on my CV, but I did give it away a couple of years ago. What led you to keep it as long as you did? I loved it. Nobody else seemed to love it, at least nobody else that was available to do it. There were a few people that also loved it, but they had other roles. You know, I didn't want to give it away to somebody who didn't have a passion for it. But a couple of years ago, there was somebody who was very tentative. And so I spent a few years helping them feel more confident and then gave it away. I'll have to fix my CV. It's okay. (laughs) Two years after fellowship, you became the radiology residency program director. What attracted you to that role? Well, again, this was, I was interested in the role. I did not expect, I had a field promotion because the residency director who was very good at it, his wife applied for and matched to the program. 
And so clearly it was not appropriate for him to stay on as the program director. We were a much smaller faculty then, so I was kind of a natural choice for it. Plus, you know, everybody stepped back. So, you know, I was standing. That was the real incentive at that point. What was the most difficult aspect of the job to get accustomed to? You are just barraged with problems. And, you know, people just stop you in the hall all the time to tell you about something that happened that they didn't like or that shouldn't have happened. You can't expect people to say thank you in that job. You have to be fulfilled by making things better. And I mean, I was never looking for anyone to say thank you, but it was pretty clear pretty early that the satisfaction had to come from solving problems and making the program better. I still describe myself as a recovering program director because it's a hard job. What advice do you have for would-be and new residency program directors? Go to AUR every year. That is the one meeting where you'll have peers, you'll have programming that is very, very specific to how to be a program director. I mean, I used to go and think, like, why didn't I know all this stuff? I never even heard of this new regulation. And it was a little terrifying in the beginning. But after a while, I just became very confident that I would learn what I needed to learn from other program directors in APDR. And I would learn what I needed to know about education at the AUR meeting. And then over time, that became a very, very important meeting to me for lots of reasons. But yeah, I would say that's the most important thing. The AUR, of course, is the Association of University Radiologists, and you refer to the APDR, which is the Association of Program Directors in Radiology. I mean, you have been very engaged with the AUR and the APDR. Particularly the APDR looks like essentially over a 20-year commitment of near-continuous engagement and service. Tell us about the APDR and what led you to commit to it so deeply. I went to the AUR when I was a senior resident for the first time, and I realized that the content was all stuff that I was really, really interested in. So that was the beginning. And then the APDR, it's all program directors, and it was very action-oriented. You know, program directors are people who solve problems as quickly and efficiently as they can. And so here was an organization that was made up of people like that. And as an organization, we would find a problem and we would find a solution and we would make it happen. And it was so refreshing. People were very clear in the way they spoke about things and what they needed. We started sharing resources so early. At one point, everybody brought paper copies of their curriculum. And that was kind of where we started from in terms of a unified or a standard curriculum for radiology residency. And then I remember as clearly as if it was yesterday, the meeting where we talked about that. And then we said, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could put it all on thumb drives? And then everybody could get a thumb drive and they'd have all the documents they need. And walking out of that meeting, by the time we walked into the next meeting, Larry Davis said, I just talked to the ACR. They're going to supply the thumb drives. And that was just, to me, the epitome of what the organization was like. Like, we have a problem, we found a solution, and now we're going to put it into operation, and it will be done. You could make things happen. And being able to make things happen on a national level for the organization, rather for the profession, was incredible. 
It was incredible. Yeah, very rewarding. During those years, you also became increasingly engaged in medical staff activities at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Tell us about some of your early committee assignments and what did you find rewarding about them? Well, I'm still chair of the Credentials Committee, and I started that in 1993 as well. So I might be the oldest living Credentials Committee chair. You know, what we did on that committee... Again, we went from paper to not even thumb drives, but, you know, all digital. But what we started doing is every new person that came on that committee got a copy of a book called Blind Eye. I don't know if you know about it. I read about it as a New Yorker article. And it's about a physician who was literally murdering people, murdering patients, murdering peers, And he kept getting passed from job to job. No one ever owned up to it. And so he would go to the next place and do the same thing. At one point, his nickname was like Double O Doctor or something like that, that he was licensed to kill because there seemed to be more deaths on his shifts. And it's a fascinating book of investigative journalism. And he did ultimately get, you know, put in jail. But I mean, nobody actually knows how many people he killed. He tried to poison his co-workers when he was an EMT. And so we gave committee members that book to emphasize that even though what we were doing meeting to meeting was very kind of dry, like looking at dates and looking at documents, that the purpose behind it was that we were really taking care of patients and preventing harm. And people found it a very inspiring book and People liked being on that committee. We all had a real sense that what we were doing mattered. And so I'm still on that committee. And I will probably stay on it until I retire at this point. Or, I don't know, until I get way too busy. But I've never stopped liking it. To what extent do you encourage your own junior faculty to follow your footsteps and engage in extra departmental service to the medical center? I do encourage them. And I kind of tell people... You know, there's this whole school of thought that says when you're offered some additional responsibility that you should say, well, what would you like me to stop doing in order to take this on? And I have never done that. And in fact, you may even have heard me say this before. It got to the point where I would literally say to myself silently, let them finish the sentence before you say that you'll do it, before you say yes. I just always said yes because everything led to something interesting that I couldn't have foreseen. And I have no regrets about that. I mean, occasionally I did something that I stopped because it wasn't interesting enough to continue, but I never regretted, you know, trying all these different things. Yeah. You might not be surprised to hear that that is a recurring theme amongst people that we talk to on this podcast. It's definitely a trait of leaders. After about 12 years on the faculty at Dartmouth, you joined the Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine Program for Women, also known as ELAM. What led you to seek formal leadership training? There were definitely skills that I thought I needed, and in particular, finance. I thought I needed to learn more about finance. I also like school. I mean, you may have noticed I also got two master's degrees while I was working as a radiologist here. I just think it's an incredible experience to have smart people teach you things. I love it. And I can remember also coming home from the master's degree one day and saying, it's unbelievable. If I have a question, all I have to do is put my hand in the air 
and they tell me the answer. Like, I don't have to figure it out myself. <laughs> so I love going to school. I take classes every chance I get. I mean, I haven't done it since COVID, but I take language classes. I take craft classes like painting and metalsmithing. You know, I love being instructed and learning to do new things. So we've had several ELAM graduates on the podcast, and everybody that I've spoken to who's been a part of ELAM speaks glowingly of the experience. What can you share of your experience with ELAM? I would also speak glowingly of it. And there were times in my life where I thought that maybe I had more in common with other radiologists than I did with other female physicians. And ELAM absolutely taught me that my peer group with other women physicians was critical. I don't remember if I really knew that or not at that point, but I certainly knew it after being there. And the other thing that was really empowering about that experience was it was not just women physicians, but women that were willing to stand up and say, I'm ambitious. I want to go further. I want to be a leader. I'm not in this for fun. This is serious stuff and I own it. And I try to encourage junior faculty, and especially women, to just own their ambition. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not indelicate or immodest. If you know that you want to go further, then own it. And it's very empowering, I think. The other women in my groups, we all helped each other. We helped each other figure out strategies. We gave each other advice. When I went to ELAM, I was not a vice chair, but I was doing all the work of the vice chair. I was going to the meetings. I was subbing for my chair whenever he was out of town or busy. And when we talked about it, you know, my peers said, well, that's ridiculous. You need to go ask him. You need to go tell him that you should have that title. And I don't know if I would have done it, but when I got back, I did that. And he said, absolutely. Maybe he was waiting for me to ask. I don't know. It was a great moment where I was able to just say, this is what I want and I want you to do this for me. And that's all it took. What a great lesson. You've been an active promoter of women for leadership positions within radiology for some time. What are some of the steps that you feel we as a profession can be pursuing with greater vigor in order to enhance the number of women leaders in our field? Well, I think the biggest thing, we have to figure out why we're still only 28 or 29% women in the field. And I really don't understand why that is. I do understand that if you don't see women leaders or women as role models, you know, that's a disincentive to going into a field. But it seems to me that radiology is the ultimate in flexibility and in intellectual satisfaction. And it allows you to be an advocate for patients in a way that very few other positions allow you to be. So I think that is the piece we've all tried. There's lots of papers, but we're not getting there. And I think we're either not asking the right questions or we're not asking them at the right time or we're not asking the right people. And it's hard to do that because if you survey radiology residents, well, they already want to be radiologists. So I think that's one of the real issues because women are rising to be leaders in our profession. I don't think that's that much of a barrier at this point. There are more women in SCARD than there have been, although I don't have that data. There are more women chairs across the board in multiple professions than there ever were. But we are lagging behind surgery and orthopedics, which seems crazy. 
So, you know, we are trying to encourage medical students to at least think about radiology. We, thanks to Petra Lewis, who is absolutely my secret weapon, we have an incredible elective and incredible opportunities for medical students in our department. And they see a lot of women in the department because we have a lot of women in the department. And that was not intentional. I mean, I chose the best people I could find. And a lot of them were female. And so that has worked out really well for us. So we have the role models. And I don't want to evoke a pipeline because it's not a pipeline problem. There are plenty of women medical students. There is some kind of a barrier that we haven't figured out. Shortly after your ELAM experience, you were appointed assistant dean for clinical affairs. How did that opportunity come about and what did the role entail? That was another one of those moments where I said yes before the sentence was over. You know, it had a lot to do with faculty development. It was not a very well thought out role. And in fact, I learned later when I read the LCME report, every problem the plan was going to be, oh, well, we're going to have an assistant medical director, you know, so apparently they figured that getting me in that role was going to be the answer to everything, which of course it wasn't. But I really did enjoy the faculty development piece a lot. And again, I went to the educational side and I started giving talks on the CV, like what should a CV look like? I had senior people that were full professors and ready for retirement at some of these things. And they said, you know, I have never been to a talk about how to construct your CV. And this was really helpful. So there was some basic skill building that was necessary in that job. And also teaching people what the process was of getting promoted. Because again, there were documents, they were not easy to find, and they were incomprehensible. You know, I was trying to help people understand what was involved and that it could be done. You know, it wasn't magic. Like the fairy wasn't going to tap you on your head and get you promoted. You just needed to be somewhat thoughtful about what you were doing and what you needed to do and ways to do it. It's interesting because the title is Clinical Affairs, but it almost sounds more like academic affairs and professional development. Yeah, it was. It was a medical school function, not really so much of a medical center function. Although, you know, the medical school gave me the position and my work was in the medical center with the physicians. But luckily, it was so poorly defined that I could do what I thought mattered. So that's what I did. I held the role of Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at Stanford for a number of years, and it was totally different. <laughs> we won't unpack that right now, but it's just fascinating. Titles, you know, they can mean so many different things. ELAM wasn't your only formal leadership training. You spent time at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, initially in an executive education program for section chiefs and practice managers, and then a few years later in a formal degree-granting program where you earned an MHCDS What led you to undertake these successive programs after completing ELAM? Well, the MHCDS program was the one that the Tuck School was very involved with. And at that point, I really wanted an MBA. And it wasn't really available to me. Although now, I mean, I probably would do an online MBA. The MHCDS program, it's a Master's of Healthcare Delivery Science. And what it was, was a joint program between the Business School and the Dartmouth Institute, which is... Hard to define, but it's kind of outcomes and improvement and microsystems thinking and a lot of research. The Dartmouth Atlas came out of TDI. 
So population health, all of those things. So in the first degree program, I learned about statistics, which somehow I never got statistics in my education. And I learned about finance and social determinants and a lot of things like that. But when I went to the MHCDS program, that's really what pulled everything together because I learned about operations from a business school perspective. Like I knew about PDSA cycles, but I didn't really know that there were ways to do an analysis ahead of time so you didn't have to waste your time with PDSAs that were going to end up not working. So for an example, the thing that I always think about if somebody asks me about this is I learned about Little's Law, which has to do with queuing theory and figuring out the bottlenecks. And we had an issue in ultrasound. Ultrasound was just, you know, oh, do we need two radiologists? Do we need three radiologists? Things are bogging down. What's the problem? And so my project was to use Little's Law and analyze what we were doing in ultrasound. The answer was there. I didn't do a PDSA cycle until I already had really good data-driven ideas about what the problem was. And so I would say that's kind of an example of what the MHCDS program really did for me. It gave me tools and ways to apply them that somehow I hadn't seen before. Unbelievably smart people in that program. I met a guy who was in the Ministry of Health in Rwanda. I got to be friends with a couple of guys in the Navy who apparently are hugely big deals in the Navy, but of course I didn't know any of that. They were just guys I really liked. And it's been very interesting to watch people from that program as they progress in their careers. The project that we did as a group had to do with regional radiology. So you notice that my title is now vice president. A lot of what we did, there was a core group of us that continued to work together and then reached out to work with other hospitals. And now I think I have nine locations where we provide services. You know, I learned things in an accelerated way that probably would have taken me my whole career to learn. And again, I could raise my hand. They would tell me. When approached by physicians wondering if they should commit to formal leadership training or even a degree-granting program, how do you advise them? They have to really want to do it. It's not like a little train that will carry you to your next job. You know, I think you have to really think about whether you need it and whether, regardless of whether you need it or not, you're going to find the experience so satisfying that it will enrich your life, regardless of whether it gets you a promotion. I just don't think you can ever say, I'm going to do this because then I'll get promoted. Because the beauty of these programs is also that it may send you in a completely different direction. And actually, I'm circling back now to TDI, and we're talking about an executive education in healthcare, kind of an online program, and we're talking about a consulting service. And, you know, you just don't know where things are going to go. TDI is? The Dartmouth Institute. They were the other half of the MHCDS program. They were the clinical half. After serving as assistant dean for nearly 10 years, you transitioned to greater departmental leadership. You had been vice chair, as you told us, for about eight years while serving in your decanal role and then became interim and finally permanent chair of the department. After a broader system level role, what attracted you to becoming department chair? Well, so first of all, it was a sense of responsibility. You know, I had always felt responsible for the department. And so, of course, I was going to say yes. I had had 
experiences with being on the board of governors for the institution, you know, I was interested to see what I could do for the department within the context of the institution, which I know sounds kind of vague. And there were some personal things as well. I have to say that I felt that as a female physician, it was really important for me to take on the chairmanship because at that point, I think there was one other female chair and I wanted there to be a female chair of radiology. You know, I wanted people to see that you could do that. And Dartmouth had had a kind of a history as a bit of a men's club, you know, so I thought it was important. I thought there were things I could accomplish as a chair that I wanted to accomplish. I was interested to see what would happen in the sort of national radiology world if it would change anything, becoming a chair. Although I can't say that was why I did it. But, you know, the real thing that happened, like I always felt, I think, in my heart of hearts that being a chair was a goal, although I wasn't always willing to admit it to myself. And then the last few years of my chair's time, I began to feel the weight of it increasingly. I would look around and think, oh, how would I fix that? I don't know how to fix that. And what am I going to do if that's my problem to fix? And then I was passed over for interim. And that was a bit of a shock because I didn't want to be interim that much, but I felt like it was my responsibility to be interim. So it hurt my feelings. But then about a week later, one of my partners said, you know, Jocelyn, I hope I'm not saying anything I shouldn't say, but you seem inappropriately happy. And I realized that the weight of the world was no longer on my shoulders. You know, I was just free to be a member of the department and the problems in the department were not my problem anymore. And that was so freeing so that when things turned and they asked me to be interim, I felt very comfortable saying yes to it because I had let go of that kind of intense stress and I was able to really enjoy it. And I had let go of the ambition as well. I had just let go of the whole thing. And at that point, having it as an opportunity was all upside. You know, I felt like I would do the best I could improve things as much as I possibly could, but I didn't feel that pressure anymore. And so I really was able to enjoy it more. So, I mean, it's that irony of leadership, which is, you know, you want the leader to be somebody who doesn't want to be the leader. But in a way, I feel like I somehow ended up in that position. Yeah. I mean, honestly, everything you've said about your career up to that point would suggest that you did want to be the leader. I mean, you just accepted it on different terms. To what extent do you feel that your prior roles and your leadership training and all your experience really prepared you for the role of department chair? I think all of those experiences have made it more possible for me to take this role on. And, you know, when I have been asked about what do I do when I feel overwhelmed, and I feel that these experiences have put me in a position where I don't feel overwhelmed that much anymore. Like, I'm confident that I will find a way to deal with the problem. I rarely have trouble sleeping because I'm worrying about the job. I'm not. I feel like, okay, I'm going to go to sleep and tomorrow morning I may have a new idea. I may have to stand in that hot shower a little longer, but I'm going to have a solution. And so I think it gives you a little more confidence, not just in your ability, but in your creativity, you know, that you're going to be able to find a way to make it work. Were there any surprises when you took on the role, that even after all of the experience and training and roles that you had, that just you didn't expect? I was surprised at how much of a middle manager I still was as chair. And I don't know if the roles have changed over time, 
or if that's particularly true here. But I'm still constantly threading the needle between what the department needs and what administration cares about and wants and needs and how often I have to kind of construct a path that will optimize what I can do for the department, but I will frame it in a way that administration can say yes to it. So I'm not even talking about convincing them that it's important. I'm really talking about finding a path to yes. My radiology director, the one before this and the current one, we just tell ourselves, you know, we are going to think outside the box. We don't ask for permission. We are happy to say we're sorry, but we don't ask for permission because the answer is always no. Or the answer is we have to discuss it. We have to have a meeting. We have to have another meeting. This person's out of town. If you ask for permission, you're giving yourself six months of delays before they say no. So there have been some very practical things. And then the other thing I learned that's super practical is you completely let go of your ego in terms of accomplishments, right? It's not my accomplishment. It never is. You know, my accomplishment is that my department is doing great and my people are happy. That's my accomplishment. But what I learned as a tool is to socialize ideas. And by that, I mean, you start talking about an idea every chance you get until it starts to bounce back. And eventually, it bounces back as somebody else's idea that we're going to adopt. And that's a win, You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, Jocelyn came up with this idea six years ago and you people have been waiting. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care who gets the credit. I want to make it happen. And so we talk about that, about socializing an idea. And I guess the other way I think of that is the guy that wrote A Prayer for Owen Meany, John Irving, he wrote another book and he talked about pre-disastering. And so I like to go to leadership and pre-disaster them and say, well, you know, we're going to need this person couple years, we're definitely going to need them. Oh, we're getting closer to needing them. I think we're getting to the time where we need them. And by then they've heard it so many times that they know we're going to need them. So I think of that as pre-disastering them, you know, early and often until it becomes inevitable. Very wise words. That's excellent. You've been department chair for about seven years. Looking back, how do you see the arc of that experience? Has it evolved over time? I mean, it's hard to think of an arc because there's a big plunge with the pandemic. And so now I have this phrase in my head. I'm pretty sure that this idea came from a paper that I saw. The title of the paper was Optimizing the Hybrid Department. But optimizing the department of the future is something I think about literally every day. What are the trends that we need to get on top of right now? And what are the trends we need to position ourselves to be ready to manage So if there's an arc, I hope that the arc means before I'm done, I've got us positioned so that we can optimize this kind of future department. And we're not that big, you know, so it's not like I have huge groups that I can silo or manage that way. We really cross cover quite a lot still. So we're still a very close knit department And we're kind of in and out of each other's lives, which, you know, may be a real plus for us because we know the players. You mentioned that you're also serving as vice president of the regional radiology service line for Dartmouth-Hitchcock system. What does that role entail? So that's the title, but what it really is, is that, you know, coming out of MHCDS, we 
started covering some very remote hospitals, hiring the radiologists and sending them there. What makes things particularly challenging for us is that none of these hospitals are in the same PAC system as us or the same EMR. We have long distances into communities where Wi-Fi is not good. And so the first three places that we went, we ultimately left because they were really far away, way up north. People did not want to live there, and it was too far for people to drive from anywhere. You can't get there from here was pretty much the bottom line on those. But at this point, we have nine locations where we hire the radiologists. We put the radiologists in those positions. We negotiated directly with those hospitals, me and the director. We go in and we tell them, this is what we can do for you. This is what we cannot do for you. We kind of have a little dog and pony show at this point because we have such clarity on what we can and can't do. And at this point, we have people coming to us, asking us if we will take over, providing the professional services. I'm open to running their department. I think that that's the next step. And I think we need to do that because we'll be overall able to produce a better product. That's fantastic. Leadership can be stressful. What do you do to unwind and recharge? I have two dogs that are really, really fun. I go hiking with them on the weekend, most weekends. Interestingly, I probably hike with them more in the cold weather and in the snowy months than I do in the summer because I have a group of friends, mostly women, more dogs than humans, and we go out together with a huge pack of dogs. We snowshoe or we ski on local trails. In the summertime, I have a lake house that I go to I just love to look at the water. So, you know, when the lake is not frozen, I go there on the weekend quite a lot. And that's been a real learning curve for me as well, because as you know, I'm a widow and my husband drove the boat and I didn't know how to drive the boat. And I was terrified. Driving the boat actually is not an issue. It's docking the boat. As a friend of mine once said, you know, boats don't have brakes. It's a big boat. It's 23 feet. And I've got these insane dogs on the boat. They're no help at all. Although I'm trying to teach one of them, mostly because I think it'd be funny, I'm trying to teach her to take the rope in her mouth when she jumps out of the boat. (laughs) I just think it'd be funny. But anyway, so I mean, I've had to learn that. And it's taken a lot of energy, but it's very, very satisfying. I love being on the water. I don't drive the boat for fun. I drive it as transportation, but I do now enjoy driving it. I'm on an island, so there's no other way to get there. And that's a very satisfying, relaxing way to spend the weekend. Sounds very cool. What kind of dogs are they? They're Portuguese water dogs. And my friends all tell me that they're terrible, which is just silly. (laughs) I think they're great. I mean, just because they will steal food, does that (laughs) make them bad dogs? I don't know. But they're very smart. They're a working breed, and they're a very, very smart breed. And they're pretty devoted to me. So they follow me around the house, and that's been great. You mentioned you have kids. I have three children. They're all adults. And what I have said in the past is they own a house with the bank. They have jobs. They have health insurance. So my work is done. They're all responsible adults. Three grandchildren and twins on the way. So I will have five soon, and that's nice. My oldest lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife and two little girls, My next one lives in Minneapolis with her husband and one little boy and is pregnant with twins. And my youngest lives in D.C. and she's going to rule the world and she'll definitely choose my nursing home. She can go through 
like a revolving door and come out with two business cards and a job offer. She is the queen of networking. I've never seen anything like it. She was running the Obama campaign in high school, our town campaign, and taught me what to say on the phone. You know, they're very interesting, nice people, and I feel so lucky. Do you get to spend much time with them? Not enough. They're all a plane ride away. But we text each other a lot and we FaceTime each other a lot. And as a matter of fact, my oldest grandchild, at one point I was FaceTiming with her. She's not even five yet. She looked up to me. She was probably three. And she said, hi, Dr. Bubby. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. You sustain your leadership activities over a very long period. How did you approach raising your family while committing so fully to your local and national leadership roles? It's easier for me to answer this in retrospect, of course, but you know, my feeling about it is I might have enjoyed my life more if I had had more time with my children, but my feeling is that they have turned out to be such successful, responsible, kind adults. And that's what it's about. You know, the whole point of it is to raise children to be wonderful adults. And I look at it a lot the way I look at pregnancy in a way, which is that pregnancy is miserable. You know, like you don't become pregnant thinking you're just going to feel wonderful and tiptoe through the daisies and all this kind of stuff. And it's not about your birth experience either, because trust me, it's not going to be that great. It's about having a healthy baby. And being a parent is about having healthy adults at the end of the run. And so there were times when I felt guilty. And I'll quickly tell you one funny thing. There was a weekend when all the kids were home when they were younger. We were talking about what we had to do. And I said, oh, you know, I got to do this and this. And then I need to bake cookies for the school. And my son said, mom, stop right there. If you need to bake cookies, you go ahead. But I have a driver's license and I can go buy some. You know, I thought that was great. Like he was so kind and he completely saw who I was in addition to being his mother. And he gave me a wonderful out. I mean, I probably baked the cookies anyway because he was right. I needed to bake them. We used to say that, you know, the way to raise good kids is politics and sports. You know, I came from a family where sports were considered stupid. So I learned that from him. But the kids played sports every season, whether they wanted to or not. And I mean, they mostly wanted to. And my son was actually a professional athlete. So that worked. And then we always were very politically aware and we always talked about politics pretty passionately. And I think politics definitely intersects with morality and ethics and what's right and wrong. And so it led to some really good conversations with our kids. What would you say have been your most rewarding moments as a leader? So I would say one of the things that I like the best is seeing people that I've helped that succeed, seeing my residents doing great things in the world, seeing my peers do great things in the world. I know it sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but that is, I think, what kind of keeps you going. I also love to make things happen. I love to bring people together and make new things come to life. So I would say that's another thing that I find incredibly satisfying to have an idea to talk to other like-minded people or, you know, maybe not even like-minded people, but other smart people and make something happen as a result. I love that. Well, Dr. Jocelyn Chertoff, you are such a insightful 
leader and adage, you know, know yourself, I feel is so well embodied in you through the things that you have shared with us, such terrific lessons to impart and such a rich experience. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and I didn't know what to expect, but this has just been a fun conversation. So thank you. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.